to John this morning. Once again to chapter 19. The more I study God's word, the more God's word absolutely amazes me. I read passages that I've, I've read I don't know how many times <laughs> at this point sometimes, and I'm thinking, I don't ever remember reading that, or I haven't thought about that in a very long time. I love the Gospel of John. It's my favorite book in the New Testament. And the reason is because it seems to be a lot more personable than you're going to find even with the other Gospels. The other Gospels kind of keep Jesus at a distance, and at the same time, the Gospel of John brings him very much up close and very personal to us. We're studying through, uh, we've been, been studying the Passover week now for some weeks, covering things that we've talked about quite a bit down through the, the years that we've been here. Uh, and I'm doing things a little bit differently right now. I, I hope some people don't have the idea that what I'm doing is I'm just trying to figure out what I can do so that we wind up on Easter uh, maybe I've given you that idea. That's not exactly what's going on here. I'm, you know, praying that I'm being led by the Holy Spirit and, and you know, and that sort of thing. But, you know, that's been kind of in the back of my mind that we would study through John and wind up on Easter, on Easter, uh, the Easter passage on Easter Sunday. That would probably be a good time to do that, right? Uh, but I, I'll be honest with you. Every, every sermon that I preached... On, any, on these particular passages, I could easily preach five or ten sermons on the same passage. You know, I'm sitting and I'm studying during the week. There are just things that come up, just, just, you know, things I hadn't even thought about before, things I haven't noticed before. And I just want to share this with you. I don't know if it's the, John is, the Gospel of John is speaking to you maybe in new ways and that it hasn't before, but it is to me. And I'm so thankful for that. Uh, we've been studying the Passion Week of Christ and, and more recently the trial of Christ at the hands of Pilate urged on by the Jewish religious leaders who want nothing but the blood of Jesus and will settle for nothing less than that. We've seen uh, Pilate squirm around a bit. But just remember this, that Pilate has, in fact, had Jesus scourged at this point, And Jesus is standing nearby him, bleeding profusely and in horrendous pain as all of this conversation is going on. So this man has already subjected Jesus to very unimaginable torture. But he's admitted at this point that he has found no guilt in him. Certainly nothing that's worthy of it being crucified. I notice he's already had him scourged. And we talked about how terrible and awful that was a few weeks ago. 
But we see Pilate even here hesitant to move ahead. And just remember, he was not a good guy. He was a very unjust person. He's already done some very wicked and evil things to the Jewish people. They don't like him. They hate him. And let me just tell you, this is a hate relationship on both sides of the ball. He cares nothing really about the Jewish people. The only thing he cares about is advancing himself, making himself look good in front of Pilate with the hope of maybe getting him out of this very unpopular place called Judea. It's not the place that any ambassador of Caesar would like to be. He's probably there because he's not in favor, in Caesar's favor at the moment. He probably looks upon this assignment as more of a punishment than anything else. He hasn't found him guilty of anything worthy of death. Let me just read these verses this morning. And just remember all the things that we've talked about and all the things that we've read prior to this. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns in the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, uh, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him for I find no guilt in him there he admits he has found nothing in him worthy of death for certain the Jews answered him we have a law and according to that law he ought to die because he's made himself the son of God when Pilate heard this statement he was even more afraid he entered the headquarters again and said to Jesus where are you from but Jesus gave him no answer so Pilate said to him you will not speak to me you, uh, do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. That's what we studied in last week. Now for this week. From then on, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement in Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the, to the Jews, Behold your king. They cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to be crucified. The conclusion of what was called the supposed trial of Jesus. The Jewish leadership here is claiming that Jesus has committed some crime. But as is very often true of sinful people, they are blind to their own actions. They're blind to their own sin. Shortly before this, the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. They couldn't find anybody that would testify to any wrongdoing that Jesus had actually committed for many bore false witness against him but their testimony did not agree 
the point I want to make this morning, first of all, is this, is these, these Jewish leaders, even though they're claiming that Jesus is sin, that Jesus is the sinner, that they, in fact, are the ones that are sinning in this picture, and they have committed great and heinous sins against Jesus. They were purposely looking for false witnesses. They're guilty. They are guilty of real crimes before God at this point. Purposely looking for people who are willing to bear false witness against Jesus. And somehow, I guess in their minds, they're thinking that if we get someone else to do it, then we're really not doing it ourselves, so we're innocent of any crime that's committed in that situation. It would absolve them of any responsibility. Can you imagine Jesus standing there listening in quiet in absolute pain and bleeding notice the patience of our Lord he could have brought everyone that, were, that was gathered there that day to their knees at any moment. And yet he opted not to do that. David wrote these words, and they very well could have been the words of Jesus at that, this point. It's, he said this, he said, Hide me from the secret plots of the wicked, from the throng of the evildoers, who wet their tongues like swords, who aim bitter words like arrows, shooting from ambush at the blameless, shooting at him suddenly without fear. They hold fast to their evil purposes. They talk of laying snares secretly, thinking who can see them. They search out injustice. They continue to press Pilate to crucify Jesus, even though he has already declared that he has found nothing in him worthy of death. They bring up this argument that if you release this man, then you're not Caesar's friend. Because everyone who makes themselves a king is opposed to Caesar. The truth is this, is there were many kings in the Roman Empire. There was King Herod. You heard that before? This helps us to see where Pilate is coming from, and that is this is the thing he is most interested in is making himself look good before Caesar. 
because you need to understand something. Pilate hates being where he is. He does not like Palestine. It's not the place anybody wanted to be or to go to. Constant rebellion, constant problems. He is there for one reason, and that's because that's where Caesar put him. He's not a moral man. The only thing he's interested in here, here is playing out things in such a manner that it's going to work to his own benefit. He doesn't care about Jesus. He's not protecting Jesus. He's not speaking for Jesus' well-being. You know, it would, in a sense, be a crime if Jesus claimed to be king if... It wasn't true. But the fact of the matter is we know this, that Jesus was not just a king, he was the king. He was the king of kings and the Lord of lords. The king that Pilate and everyone else will eventually answer to. I mean, right now, can, can, you, can you imagine being Pilate as history unfolds? You know, right now, he's on the judgment seat, and he's judging Jesus, and et cetera, and et cetera. But at the time of his death, that the tables turned, and he stood before the judgment seat of God himself. And guess who was there? Jesus. Passing judgment on him. And having the power and authority to do it. That would have been like a really, really big one of those oops, uh-oh moments. Same thing is true for all of these religious leaders. Claiming to speak on God's behalf. Claiming to have a love of God. Claiming that Jesus is an affront to God. Can you imagine what their reaction was at the time of their death and their spirit came into the presence of holy God and Jesus was there? He has one last conversation with the Jewish leaders. And they will not budge an inch. So he gives up. And he gives in. He brought Jesus out and sat on the judgment seat. Apparently he was not there at this time. But the judgment seat's called the stone pavement. Was this, it was a raised platform on which there was a seat. And he would go up there and sit on it. And that's where he would make his judgments from. His official chair. Designed so that he looked down upon people as he judged past judgment on them. He's up high, they're down low. There was a purpose in that. I want to remind us of something, and that is this, that it was preparation day for the Passover. Remember the Passover? Remember the Passover lamb that was slain in Egypt, every household? That the angel of death would pass over them? 
when they spread the blood on the doorpost and the lintel of their house? Remember that? That is what these Jewish people are about to celebrate. It's the very next day. The next day is the day of preparation. Well, they will be preparing for doing that as they did annually. But just remember, on that day, the head of every household would appear at the temple with a lamb. And they would take it into the temple, and at some point, they would slit the lamb's throat with a knife themselves. And the priest would collect some of the blood in a bowl. And then they would take that blood, and they would pour it at the base of the altar. Can you imagine tens of thousands of lambs in one day? And these very priests who are part of this mob will be there doing their job. And on the day before, they pushed Caesar to kill the true Lamb of God. How ironic. Reality is God is only allowing wicked and evil men to do what wicked and evil men do. But just as Joseph, the son of Jacob, said so many years before that to his ten older brothers who sold him into bondage, he said to them, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Jesus' death is the lamb, the true lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world was symbolized in the sacrifice of all of those Passover lambs. And we need to remember that everything that's being played out here is a play being played out according to God's timetable. Everything that's happening here is according to what God determined would happen. And when it would happen. All of it. We've mentioned this before already, and that is this, is, is very often people would come to the conclusion that I can never take part in doing something like that. But I just want to remind us this morning that it was our sin that made all of this necessary. Jesus didn't die for the masses. Jesus died for believers. For you and I. Our guilt killed Jesus.
we are therefore not innocent of our Savior's blood, any of us. If Jesus had to die to bring salvation to only one single person, everything that took place in his, high, his life still would have been absolutely necessary. He would have had to endure everything he did if he did what he did to save Randy Watson. We tend to look upon our sin and think of it as being little. It's certainly compared to other people. As we look around, we can always find people that are far worse than we are, right? But the guilt of my sin was sufficient to demand the death of the Son of God. Forget about the rest of you guys. Now that's a sobering thing. should be a sobering thing for all of us. And there's a couple of things that we should get from it. And one of those is just how heinous our sin really is because we don't really believe that it is now, do we? But there's another thing that is pictured in it that we can never forget. And that is this. This is a measure of just how much God cares about you, how much God loves you, that he's willing to do this for you. And if he chosen to love just you and only you out of all of mankind, Jesus still would have had to do absolutely everything that he did just to save you. Jesus says to them, and he, he was probably doing it in a sarcastic way, Behold your king. Remember that Pilate had had a conversation with Jesus about this whole king business. He had said to Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus responded, my kingdom is not of this world. In other words, it goes way beyond the Jews. Way beyond the Jewish people. Soon after his birth, a wise man came from the east and they referred to Jesus as the king of the Jews. Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. Now to the dismay of the Jew, Jewish leaders that are gathered there, Pilate now ascribes the same title to Jesus. We understand that it's an act of sarcasm on his part. It's a way of him getting a dig on these Jewish leaders. They'll have that written on a placard and fix it to the cross of Jesus, the king of the Jews. Calling him the king of the Jews was simply a way for him to save a little bit of face. 
Not because he was a good and great and upstanding guy. He knows that these Jewish leaders have manipulated him. They box him in a corner and he does not like it one whit. And this is just a little bit of a way for him to get back at them. They ascribe, at this point, the title of king, not to Jesus, but to Caesar. Under normal circumstances, no self-respecting Jewish person would have ever acknowledged or called Pilate their king. Or Caesar their king, rather. They hated him. They abhorred him. They wanted nothing to do with him. They wanted him out of the place. But it just goes to show you how depraved these people are at this point. That they are calling Caesar now their king. It's a measure of just how much they hated Christ. They were willing to stoop that low. <laughs> so what does Pilate do? He gives up and he gives in. And he delivers Jesus over to be crucified. We talked about the humiliation of Christ a few weeks ago. And we, and we said that it all began with his incarnation. Can you imagine God, in essence, stepping down from divinity in a way and becoming a low-life person, human being? And we've seen that Jesus has been humiliated all through this gospel over and over again. The epitome of his humiliation is the crucifixion. It will also be the end of it forever. Well, Pilate is about to step into the background of our story. But he will be forever known as the man who killed Jesus. Symbolically, from the gospel according to Matthew, at this point he took water and washed his hands before the crowd saying, I'm innocent of this man's blood. And all the people answered, his blood be on us, and guess who? Our children. Just a measure of just how 
much hatred these people had for Christ. I want to remind us this morning that being a Christian also means sometimes and in some ways and in some places suffering. And I'm not talking about suffering for any and every reason. I'm talking about suffering specifically because you're a Christian, not suffering from some other reason. And I would imagine that most of us at some point or another have suffered at least to some degree because of the fact we're Christians. Maybe we've lost friends over it. And there were people that I was very close to before I became a believer that basically disassociated with me once I became one. Being a Christian is costly. Sometimes it means giving up things that worldly people really think are important. I want us to remember something else this morning, and that is this, is these people, our dear brothers and sisters in the Ukraine that are suffering right now because they believe in the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I would imagine most of us in this room have suffered very little serious persecution in our whole lifetime. We may have been disenfranchised from people and things like that, but I don't imagine that your life has ever been threatened because you're a Christian. Has anyone ever, ever been, uh, their life been threatened, absolutely threatened? I'm going to kill you if you don't deny Christ. Have you ever been put in that circumstance? Have you ever even been close to that circumstance? We need to be praying for our brothers and sisters in the Ukraine because they are being put in that position. They will be standing before other people that have authority over them, encouraged to deny Jesus. And if they won't, severe consequences. We need to be praying for our brothers and sisters. And I'm not just talking about missionaries that have gone from here over there. I'm talking about Ukrainian Christians. They are being persecuted. Part of what's going on here is this. Is Putin's not a believer. Obviously. This is the world. Persecuting the church. It's not inconceivable that one of these days we might find ourselves in the same position. Things really look like they're going south, don't they? Sense and honesty and common sense, apart from everything else, seems to be fleeing from us. And a lot of the things that are going on, and, and let me just say this, that persecution could be on the horizon. Here, 
And let me promise you this. If things continue the way they are, it is coming. There are people right now out in the world that would love to persecute you, but they can't do it because law still has some say-so in this land. You're still able to believe and practice what you believe, but there are people that want to take that freedom away from you. We said this in Sunday school this morning. I believe this is true, and you can argue this from history. What has made the United States the greatest nation that has ever existed on the planet is the fact that we are decidedly Christian. That Christianity had everything to do with the founding of this nation, the writing of the Declaration of Independence, and the Constitution. Jesus said this, he said, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. It could be coming. Are you ready? Have you thought about it? Our brothers and sisters have been going through this for the last 2,000 years. It's nothing new. Subjected to humiliation, imprisoned, life taken from them. We think stuff like that could never happen here. You might want to rethink that. What I'm saying here is this, is we haven't been put in a position where we have to, under the threat of death or imprisonment or anything, no one in here has been threatened with prison because they were a Christian. That doesn't mean that we won't experience it before we die. Could happen. And let me just say this. What you and I do between now and then has everything to do with whether it actually happens. If we just hunker down and withdraw into our castle and let the world go as it goes around us and, and, and pretend like it's just going to go away on its own and that sort of thing, when it happens, we won't have anybody to blame but me, myself, and I. Are we sharing our faith with other people? I mean, you've heard the expression that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. That wherever the blood is shed of martyrs, and the seed pops up, and the church grows. Is it good enough for Jesus? Is it good enough for us?
And I want to remind us of something this morning. You may get tired of me saying this, but there's one thing that separates us from these bloodthirsty men and one thing only. God's grace. For not for God's grace, everyone in Jerusalem would be calling for the blood of Jesus. But just remember, there were brothers and sisters in Christ there who were not doing that. Most of them were in hiding at this point because they didn't want people to know that they were Christians. But, re but just remember that this is just part of the picture. This is a picture that goes on beyond this. On the other side of the resurrection, the church comes alive. And spreads like a raging fire through much of the known world for the next thousands of years. So do we see ourselves as part of this picture? We need to. It's as if we were there. Jesus said this, he said, if the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. Wow. And wherever there's hatred, there's always suffering. Nobody likes to do it, nobody wants to do it. Uh, I guess there are some sick people that might. suffering for the cross is part of our lot it's been true for every believer down through the ages we will move on next week We're going to be talking about the crucifixion of Christ. Not a fun topic. But that's where we're going. And Easter is just around the corner. So remember that. Easter's coming. So we may, we may be going through this stuff that's difficult to talk about and apply to ourselves and that sort of thing between now and then. But Easter's coming. And Easter makes everything new. So my hope as we're going into more detail as we've gone through this Gospel of John, this, this Passion Week, is it will bring us to a place on Easter Sunday where we will celebrate Easter Sunday like we have never celebrated Easter Sunday in our whole lifetime. For now, we're doing, we're dealing some really hard stuff. I don't like to talk about it. I don't like to think about it. But you know what bothers me most? Is the fact that I'm the reason he's there.